welcome to FX Medicine, where we bring you the latest in evidence-based, integrative, functional and complementary medicine. I'm Emma Sutherland, and joining us on the line today is Dr. Nicola Gates, a clinical neuropsychologist, researcher and author. Today, we're going to be discussing how menopause can affect our brain, our emotions and our overall health. Thanks for joining us today, Nicola. How are you? Great, and thanks for the invitation. It's my pleasure. Now, Nicola, you have written two books that are filled with research, case studies, and women's insights, and I really love them both, and I frequently recommend them to my patients. One is on the topic of brain health, and the other is on the topic of menopause. So I feel you really are perfectly placed to help us navigate this topic today. Oh, thank you. And, you know, I wrote the book on menopause because when I was writing the one on brain health uh, and dementia, my friends um, all said to me, forget that. Tell us about our menopause brain fog. So Mm. the second book was a natural segue from the first. Yeah, it makes complete sense. And, you know, we know that menopause can be a roller coaster ride. You know, the sex hormone levels are dropping and changing and results in symptoms that we commonly associate with menopause, things like hot flushes, night sweats, weight gain, vaginal dryness and sleep issues. But what a lot of women don't realise is that these same sex hormones, and particularly estrogen, play a huge role in our brains and our cognitive function as well. So they might be experiencing the mood swings, like you mentioned, and the brain fog and forgetfulness in addition to those other symptoms. But actually, before we deep dive into this, what I think is a fascinating topic, I actually wanted to ask you quite a personal question. Now, I read in your book that you had a horrendous ride with menopause. Are you happy to share with us your personal experience on this? Yeah, thanks for checking in with me. Um, Yeah, I actually started writing the book on menopause before my own menopause um, sort of began. Um, I had medical menopause. So, you know, um, life is random and and joyous. And I was diagnosed with um, grade three invasive hormone-driven cancer. So um, Mm. I always joke that I'm an overachiever. So I had two... (laughs) estrogen um, driven cancers, sorry, one of them is estrogen and progesterone driven breast cancer and uh, estrogen driven breast cancer. Mm. And I didn't tolerate the anti-cancer medications very well after after a double mastectomy. Um, So they said, yep, let's whip out those ovaries and guess what, tomorrow you're going to wake up and be in menopause. And I tell you what, I was having about three to four hot flushes every hour 24-7 for the first, you know, kind of year. That just sounds absolutely awful. And I think the medical menopause, I mean, that's an instant menopause when the ovaries are removed. And I can imagine that that's a bit like slamming into a brick wall because there's no time for adjustment like there might be in in regular menopause. That's right. Uh, there is no adjustment. So every 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 part of your body that receives uh, estrogen, which let's face it is basically the entire body, yeah. um, wakes up in a big shock. But you know the alternative to menopause is from you know potentially death. And the yeah. other thing, I guess I really want to stress, and you know I have had some flack about my book because it's really positive and optimistic, saying mm. called the feel good guide is that you know menopause is a celebration of health and life because you know, if you're infertile or you have health problems, you're not, you've not been fertile, whether you have kids or not is irrelevant. Mm. You know, menopause means you've been healthy. And 
Um, and if you don't have menopause, it means you've either died young um, or you've had health problems. Mm. And, you know, every woman in the world goes through menopause, but only some women um, kind of just conceive of menopause as this horrible problem. And I guess that's one of the first things I would invite clinicians in particular, because I had doctors, you know, my own doctor kind of said, oh, gosh, you know, menopause, it's going to it's gonna ruin you kind of thing. That's right. a really unhelpful attitude. Menopause, I really think um, we need to change the dialogue around menopause because the research shows that, you know, if you expect a bad menopause, you're going to get a bad menopause. And um, whenever I'm feeling a bit low because, you know, I had five, hot flushes last night and woke up five times. Oh. The alternative is, you know, menopause is great. The alternative is death. Yeah, and, and I really love that reframe because I think in the Western world in particular, we tend to demonise menopause and look at it as as a negative thing when you know, many cultures around the world and, and particularly traditionally celebrated that time in a woman's life. So I think this is a really great reminder to all of us to maybe rethink and reframe that menopausal time. Absolutely. I think the reframe is really important. And particularly when you start thinking about um, women's mental health uh, and during this time, this complex time in their life, mm. it's, we need to reframe it as a, as a yes, it's, it's got its challenges. Inherently it does. Um, but let's think of it as a celebration and, and a reawakening. It's not a medical problem. It's mm. not a pathology. It's a wonderful thing of life. Yeah, amazing. Now, let's just hit the basics for a minute. So can you explain the different types of estrogen and the role of each one? Yeah, and you know what? I think this is a good place to start for clinicians. Um, I've spoke to lots of lots of women putting my book together, mm. and and most women had no idea that there were different types mm. of estrogen. And I think this is part of the reassuring message that they need to hear that you know you have estrogen as a child. Boys and girls both have a bit of estrogen. Then we have estrogen to help us go through our reproductive years, and and then we go back, if you like, to to E two. Um, Back to E1, sorry, postmenopause. So let's mm. let's talk about them. So you have estrone, which is E1, which yeah. is postmenopause, um, and that's largely produced by fatty tissue. So, you know, it's um, that's converted. Mm -hmm. So that's important to be a healthy weight. Um, E2, estradiol, mm. is produced in the ovaries, and that's the one that's active for the psychological and body function and brain um, to get us through our fertility years. So to help convert us, you know, we go through – it takes years to go through puberty to mm. get up to – this full reproductive life and then takes years to go down to when you don't have the E2 again. Mm -hmm. And the last form of estrogen is the one you only get when you're pregnant um, right. and that's to support pregnancy but not have obviously ovulation and, and be fertile. Right, great explanation. Yeah. And I've often heard that menopause is, is kind of commonly called the second puberty because I guess those hormone levels are adjusting again as well. But how does estrogen actually affect brain function. So when as clinicians, I think most of us look more on the physical, you know, we understand hot flushes and the mechanism there, you know, but what about the brain function side of things? Because this is where I want to focus today. Yeah. And uh, I guess there's got to be a caveat somewhere in, in this interview. And, mm. and there's two caveats, actually. One is that um, we don't really know a lot of 
the workings of estrogen. So that makes it really, really exciting. And, and you know, what we chat about today may will be improved upon and, and knowledge will be expanded considerably. And one of the reasons is that women weren't women and even female rodents in biological models and things mm. weren't included in research. So everything we're talking about is really for the last 20 years. 20 to 25 years. So uh, so that's the first thing. So there's a lot of um, information coming out all the time now. It's, it's a really um, exciting area of, of research. So, mm. you know, so um, so the understanding of estrogen in the brain is has been exceedingly limited, but estrogen is now recognised as a neurohormone in the workings of the brain. So, mm. yes, it doesn't just change the body fertility. So there's research that suggests it's involved in oxygen metabolism. And, again, I've got to say, so men have estrogen in their brains mm-hmm. um, and we have estrogen in our brains. Estrogen is important in the brain of both uh, when I talk about uh, male and female, I'm talking about biological sex. Yeah. Just to put that out there. Mm-hmm. So but, but men and women, uh, males and females, have um, oxygen – sorry, have well, they have oxygen in their brain, but they have estrogen running around in their brain. Mm. And it is believed it's using oxygen metabolism. Okay. It's linked to multiple neurotransmitter functions, okay, so including the mood-regulating chemicals that we've already talked about, including serotonin, endorphins, and oxytocin. Mm-hmm. It also has an important role in memory. And the reason I started with the caveat is because of this new research coming out all the time. Okay. And, and for example, we now know that there are different, so there's not just one estrogen receptor. We also now know that there are multiple estrogen receptors um, in the brain. And I think that's really important to say that, that our knowledge is, is constantly expanding. Yeah. Now, in terms of the sites of the brain, so they use, sorry, receptors, there seems to be receptors in the cytoplasm and mm-hmm. um, in cell membranes and, and, and nuclei. So the, as I said, there's different, this is where it starts getting complicated. So there yeah. are multiple estrogen receptors, number one. There are different places where those receptors are located. Mm-hmm. And it's now being discovered that, um, so for example, Cora's work in 2015, they found that there were estrogen receptors widely distributed um, throughout the brain, but significantly um, in the prefrontal cortex. So that's involved in, you know, higher order functions, um, in the dorsal striatum, which is, you know, has a role in decision-making, um, in action selection, initiation and so forth, because it's important in integrating sensor motor information with cognitive function and emotional or um, motivational information. Mm-hmm. Um, in the nucleus accumbens, and so that's like a neural interface between emotion, motivation, and action. So that's um, really involved in reward. And you know, when you think of reward, you've got to think of sex, food, drugs, um, sleep regulation. So those yeah. are sort of four, four basic functions. And also now, what we understand, it's got a big role in in the hippocampus um, and memory formation. Now, I think we're going to touch on all of those um, further down, but. Um, you know, there's other things as, as well. Um, so I mentioned in serotonin, so that's sort of monamine neurotransmitters. It's also got to involve a role in uh, neurogenesis, so the development of new brain cells. Mm-hmm. It seems to have a role in inflammatory processes, mm. um, neurological, um, as well as in simple cognition and, and emotional function. Um, I could keep going. So <laughs> where, I'm, where I'm going now, I guess... Um, so some of this research has, has now got a good 10 years behind it. Some of the research I'm talking about has has had less undergone less review and less repeat, but there's also a suggestion now that 
um, estrogen receptors may have a role in regulating the brain's hemispheres. Mm. Um, and we know that, for, for example, um, women's brains and male brains sort of operate a bit differently in terms of hemisphere influence. Mm -hmm. um, and, and estrogen might involve inhibiting some of the dominant hemisphere. Um, and that actually can become important later on when we talk about emotions. Mm -hmm. um, just because of, of the mental health issues that women present more than men. Yeah, and I definitely uh, want to cover that because it's something that as clinicians we see this in clinical practice and I think this is really important to sort of dive into that as well. But, you know, it's just so complex, isn't it? I mean, I can barely wrap my brain around all of that and I and I think it's quite astounding and exciting that the research is is really evolving as we speak and it's so important for us to try and stay updated with it and what it might actually mean. So, you know, I love the fact that you can translate that complex research for us into, you know, these clinical-based pearls that we're going to get through today. Um, but why do you think memory processing and learning is so impacted by menopause? Because we do see this clinically. You know, women are forgetful or they're having trouble remembering things. But what is it about the changes in hormones that impacts the memory processing and learning? Yes, and um, as, I guess as an aside, um, not so much for um, menopause, but one of the other things at the time that women report forgetfulness is is when they're pregnant. Mm. And we talked about the special estrogen um, to support pregnancy. So, um the understanding is that one of the reasons memory formation gets upset during pregnancy is that there's uh, rewiring connecting going on in the brain and it's not so much that they are forgetting so much as it's just perhaps more effortful mm. to do memory, um, memory retrieval and that's because um, they're setting up to be better at multitasking, which as you know is not actually, doesn't exist. Yeah. What's actually happening is we toggle faster and faster. So women that have had a pregnancy are better at, at toggling between different focuses, foci, I guess it would be, different foci of, of attention. Yeah. So that's so the other thing that um, so in terms of menopause, mm. um, so there's research that shows that uh, during menses the, the brain has to insulate it insulate itself against mm -hmm. the swings of estrogen that occur in the in the in the menstrual cycle mm. and that's that's as a buffer so the brain can keep functioning exactly the same no matter where we are in a in a menstrual cycle during menopause obviously we're getting less estrogen and again, the brain has to buffer. But essentially, I mentioned before about the hippocampi. So there's two, one on the left, one on the right. Mm. Um, and their role is essential for memory formation. They don't actually hold the memories. The memories are distributed throughout the cortex. Mm -hmm. The hippocampi have a role in memory formation because you've got to remember that to store information, there's got to be cellular changes. And the hippocampus is crucial in, in, in the memory formation, um, the cellular changes. Now, Estrogen increases the enzyme that's needed to synthesize acetylcholine, uh, which is crucial in um, spines in the hippocampi that are involved in, in memory formation. So, the less the the less acetylcholine you have, acetylcholine you have, the less spines you have mm -hmm. um, in the memory structures. Uh, which are used for com communication and less information transfer into memory. 
Right. So does that mean that a woman has trouble making the memory in the first place or that she has problems retrieving that memory or is it a bit of both? Uh, really good question. Uh, they talk about it in less in information transfer, so less memory. And and um, when they look at rodent studies, mm. uh, female rodents, obviously, and you know they didn't you didn't have to have, look at female rodents in memory studies up until very recently, so we didn't know this stuff. So it's yeah. all exciting and new. Um, what they found it was memory formation and retrieval. So they learned things and then they couldn't um, access the information that they already required. So certainly, rodent information would suggest that there's an impact on retrieval and, importantly, formation. Yeah, and I find that fascinating because it's, you know, I would assume that it's problems forming the memory in the first place, but it's it's more that it's it's trouble retrieving it. So I think this is a really nice thing to share with women when they're sitting in front of you and they're feeling like they've got some age-related cognitive decline to explain to them, you know, you are actually forming those memories, it's the change in estrogen causing a change in the enzyme that helps you retrieve that memory. Um, Yeah, fascinating stuff. That's right. So the less spines. So I always think, you know, when you're making a memory, the more spines, I mean, spines is the neurological term, but think of it as a piece of information and the more hooks you have on that information, Mm -hmm. the easier it is to find them. Because, you know, when you're going, um, when you're trying to grab something, the the more hooks on it, the easier it is to pick it up, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that's that's the problem. And I mean, the brain actually produces estrogen, which is something that I didn't know until I read your book. So tell us a little bit about that. Like where is it produced? What type is produced? Okay. So as I mentioned earlier on, the the brain um, needs to insulate itself against Mm. these changes. And initially they used to think that the brain used to just hook up um, systemic estrogen, um, estrogen that's already floating around mm-hmm. uh, in in the body. They've now realised, and again, you know, these caveats. This is this is very recent research. Okay. The understanding is that the brain does make E2 estradiol um, at the hypothalamus. Hmm. Okay, and now that's uh, they've looked at, um, so for example, uh, rhesus monkeys, um, and they've done studies like that. So, and this is why you know men convert testosterone into estradiol for the same reason. You know, they, your brain likes it, and if your brain thinks it hasn't got enough and it needs to get a buffer, mm-hmm. it will convert at the hypothalamus. Right. I actually never knew that, so it's it's great to be able to kind of expand my mind itself um, on this. And one of the things I did want to talk about is some white flags or maybe some differentiations between that age-related cognitive decline and the menopause-related brain changes because, you know, I'm really thinking about, you know, the 55-year-old woman who came in to see me and she's got brain fog and weight gain and she's actually very worried that she has early dementia and she says she's got trouble getting her words out. She can't remember where she put her keys. I mean, that's a frightening situation for a woman to be in. But, you know, what are some white flags that that we could keep front of mind when we're working with women like this? Yeah, good. Um, and, and good question. And this is obviously why I, I wrote my book for my friends saying, Nicola, help us, help us. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so let's just um, step back a little second with the question. Mm. So um, 
dementia or neurocognitive disorder, as it's now termed, the most common form is Alzheimer's disease, and, and that counts for about 70% of all cases. Now, the neuropathology of Alzheimer's disease is plaques and tangles, which is not what's going on in, in menopause, okay? Mm. So I guess that's the first thing to say to people is that, you know, um, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, it's a neuropathological condition. It's got these, these problems in the brain, and that's nothing like what's going on on and menopause when the brain is adjusting to having less estrogen. Mm -hmm. um, so there are plenty of reasons why people forget things. And so, you know, there's a slowing down of memory retrieval uh, in, in, in menopause, but there's also a lot of other things going on as well. And people often um, feel that they're forgetful, for example, when they're stressed or they're unhappy or they've mm. got too much going on in their life. Yeah. And that can make people forgetful. Um, and, and because of the amount of information, um, people often misattribute what's going on to to something terrible. Like if you're in a, if you're and we know this because our emotions and memory sit side by side. So if someone's worried about something and really stressed, mm. we tend to think of things that are, are worse rather than better. So when people are getting forgetful, they go, "Oh my goodness, don't tell me I'm, I'm getting dementia." Yeah. Rather than going, "You know what? I've got a lot on my plate." give myself some slack and relax. Yeah. And the more we get stressed about things, obviously we know that the, the, the memory performance goes down. So the first thing I say to, to women is, firstly, you're, they're the wrong age, you know, um, <laughs> because only 5%, you know, very few cases are what we call early onset between 65. So, you know, wrong age. Um, and completely different things are going on in your brain. One's a normal process, one's a disease process. And so let's look at what's going on in your life that may be contributing to the sense that you're forgetting. And, you know, I see women and they come in and as a neuropsychologist, mm. that's women present to me with these concerns for their memory. And I say, you know, you've got to do them give me a memory test, um, I think I've got dementia. And you know what? I've never diagnosed any one of them yeah, with right. um, early onset dementia. There's always other things going on. Yeah. The other thing that happens, which I think is really, really interesting, is that because women are dealing with this this sort of this, all these body changes and, and poor sleep and, and having trouble remembering things, they lose a lot of confidence. Mm. And the research shows that, um, A, any cognitive changes just disappear over time. So that's the first thing. Okay. But secondly, it's the loss of confidence that's the problem. So yeah. when they look at women in employment, there is absolutely no change in the level of cognitive function or their capacity to perform and work or on neuropsych tests mm -hmm. at all. So I, when I say this, I, it's not in a dismissive way that I'm, you know, I want to invalidate anyone's experience, but mm. it is all in their head um, because of lack of um, confidence um, and concern. And, you know, there's a lot going on in a woman's life it, it, during menopause yeah. that might be contributing to a loss of confidence. Yeah, and, and I think that's a big one to remind patients of and to normalise that with them, that you know, there is a lot of other things going on and their brain is adjusting to less estrogen and you know, there is a slowing down of their memory retrieval, but also to zoom out for them and say, okay, but what else is going on? Um, and, and maybe digging a little deeper on that loss of confidence because that will play a huge part in their um, experience of their memory as well. And I also like the part about, you know, the flat out, well, no, you're the wrong age for dementia because I think 
that alone is really reassuring for women when they're um, in this sort of really difficult situation. Yeah, I love that. Now, you mentioned in your book, a, uh, I think it was a 2013 study involving 200 postmenopausal women who were randomly assigned to receive estrogen, testosterone or placebo for a month. And then cognitive testing showed improvements in those taking estrogen and testosterone in as little as one month. Now, I was quite blown away by that. Um, but do you see a place for hormonal therapy in in this process? Like when would you refer somebody for hormonal therapy or when would you think that it would be a good idea and when would you not think it's a good idea? Right. So this is one of those areas in, in this this conversation of neuroendocrinology, uh, you know, looking at neurohormones, estrogen, progesterone uh, in treatments and mm. in particular on, on the neurocognitive disorders. The research is not conclusive yet okay. at all at all. And the World Health Organization has actually tried to put the brakes on on this because some people are sort of rushing forwards. And the, the counter-indicators to prolonged estrogen exposure um, are quite significant. Mm. Like it's not it's not a lifestyle option. Um, you know, obviously uh, I can never have hormone treatment myself. Yeah. Um, and and I don't and but that doesn't mean I'm anti hormone treatment at all. I, I need to state that some some women absolutely benefit from hormone treatment. The recommendation is it's sort of five years maximum because of the counter indicators. And the counter indicators are there when when we look at. Uh, neurocognitive disorders. Now, the reason people are getting excited about them mm. is because it does appear that estrogens um, inhibit the um, amyloid deposition. So I mentioned the patholo neuropathology of mm -hmm. Alzheimer's disease. Um, again, the most common form involves plaques and tangles. Now, yeah. we talk about tau proteins and, and amyloid deposition. Now, estrogen appears to inhibit those things going on. So it seems that there is a, a, a positive upstream impact mm. preventing the formation of those plaques. So that's why people have been looking at it, okay. as well as obviously the cognitive um, tests that show that people's memory has improved. Um, and certainly lifetime exposure to estrogen uh, seems to be positive. However... Mm. There's always a big, big however. Mm. There are so many things involved in the neuropathology of Alzheimer's. No one has identified any single cause at all. It seems that there are multiple causes and therefore even if um, exposure to estrogen was helpful in these cases like that study I showed you, mm. there are multiple causes to, to Alzheimer's and, and it obviously isn't a panacea, so it's not impacting everything. And as I mentioned, there's a certainly evidence to suggest that lifelong exposure to to estrogen has greater risks than benefits at this point in time. So at this at this point, if you ask me my personal opinion, yeah. I would say I'm not convinced the research is conclusive yet to, to go forwards. Okay, that's a really good insight because we do get women coming into clinic that, you know, might have read something and, you know, they just want to go on estrogen therapy. Therapy, um, and of course, we refer them on to the appropriate practitioner. 
practitioner, but it's really great to have that insight from you as well, that the research just isn't quite there yet and uh, the, the risks may outweigh the benefits in a long-term situation. Yeah. Um, now, you also mentioned uh, in your book a 2011 study. It was a small one, but I found it really fascinating. So it was on eight males and eight females, and it used brain imaging, and it showed an increase in grey matter, so, you know, your movement, memory, emotions, at ovulation. Now, I know I'm certainly more mentally switched on and energetic around ovulation. That's very clear to me. But what does that mean for women who are postmenopausal, where they're not getting that increase? Yes. So that study was part of the research I, I mentioned earlier that shows that, you know, people have said that women are different every day because of their hormones and, and you know, it's been used as to, to criticise women um, and say they're not as capable as men because of our hormones, mm. you know, and... and and the reality is our hormone levels are different every single day and that is absolutely amazing and it, and it makes us awesome. So this is part of the brain managing the changes in estrogen levels across the menstrual cycle and this is very new research and there are more studies in this area now mm -hmm. um, and it's, again, I keep saying that the word exciting but, I mean, I'm such <laughs> a neuro nerd. Um, there are more studies coming out looking at these changes and how the brain buffers against those changes. Now, that happens during um, our reproductive years, during menses, because the brain needs to. Mm -hmm. But in menopause, we don't need to. You know, the thing about being in post-menopause is that we have this constant, consistent supply and, you know, our brain will manage that for itself if we haven't got enough um, estrogens flowing around in our body. Mm -hmm. So we have this wonderful consistency and I guess one of the things you know uh, particularly to someone like you know Donald Trump who criticizes women for their, their hormones mm. a, a post-menopausal woman has a consistency of emotional um, sorry neuroendocrine experience as a man right so we have this consistency so so basically when um, there are differences between male and female brains um, and we see that in utero it starts in urology there's more similarities than differences but there're definitely differences because of our neuroendocrine um lives, our yeah. sex hormones. Um, and, you know, we grow up very similar until puberty and mm -hmm. then men and males and females completely diverge. And then post-menopause, uh, they come back and converge again in terms of multiple areas, uh, including health risk factors, for example. So we didn't talk about vascular dementia. Estrogen mm. is protective of women against vascular dementia um, and cardiovascular disease pre-menopause. Post-menopause, Menopause, women's risks for cardiovascular disease and vascular dementia become the same as men. Right. So, you know, we lose we lose some of the benefits, but they're also positives. I love that because when we're working with patients, you know, they're describing all these mood swings and things are erratic. You know, it's really great to be able to say to them, you know, this is a transitory experience. Your brain is adjusting to different levels of hormones. And on the other side of this, you know, your brain won't have those fluctuations and therefore your moods and emotions may be more steady. Would that, is that right? Well, yes, it is. And no, it's not. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Because we don't know why people's moods are going up and down anyway. But from a neuroendocrine position, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yes. They will be steady. Yes. So yes. there's a whole new field, and you know, if, if I was if I was 30 um, and not in my mid 50s, um, mm. I would love to get into the neuroendocrine um, psychiatry area, right. and and that's the area that's looking at all of this. Okay. Um, so it's looking at the relationship between hormones and emotions, and you know why things affect us and and they don't affect us. So it's all about the mind body brain connection. Yeah. And look, as as a naturopath, I find that fascinating myself. And, you know, we also see that chicken and egg situation, that bi-directional relationship between hormones and emotions and how menopausal symptoms affect emotions. And then conversely, how emotions affect hormones. I mean, they're so intricately related. Yes, they are. And it is absolutely a chicken and the egg. So you need to put the brakes in where you can to, mm. to break that cycle. Uh, and and I guess that comes back to the comment I made at the, at the sort of at the beginning, that we know that women who um, anticipate a, a terrible menopause have a terrible menopause. Mm. And, and, you know, how does that work? It's because they have a thought in their head and they set themselves up for an emotional responding, a stress response, um, and we know that that burdens the, the, the body and brain uh, and that increases symptoms. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned before about estrogen uh, affecting serotonin in particular, uh, oxytocin, endorphins, and of course it impacts cortisol. Mm. So what's going on? So estrogen and progesterone are both known as sort of psychoprotective neurohormones, uh, okay. which means that they benefit a person's psychological well-being. And what they tend to do is reduce cortisol and the sympathetic nervous system response, mm-hmm. um, which is the stress response. Uh, and they, so when, when you go into menopause, obviously you're more likely to have a heightened stress response. And this is something that women reported to me when I interviewed them for the book. They said things that didn't used to bother me now really do. Okay. Things now stress me out that didn't. And, and that, so then become people become more reactive. Now, the other thing that happens when estrogen uh, goes down, those nice uh, psychoprotective things also go down. So serotonin that we have for normal mood, we know that it goes down. We know that uh, the endorphins go down, oxytocin goes down, so feelings of trust and, and bonding yeah. uh, and, and security in relationships go down. So you can just see how if you're feeling less connected to other people, you've got a heightened stress response, you're yeah. having less normal mood uh, serotonin going on, you can just see that you're going to be more vulnerable. Mm. And if you add on top of that stress and worry um, and and, and um, other emotional things that you, you're just getting yourself into a, a potentially a really negative cycle, which yeah. is why it's really important to be optimistic and, and hopeful and positive. Yeah, and I mean, clinically, I think I definitely see it, you know, that serotonin levels in menopause, that women come in and they're also feeling depressed. And I often have thought to myself, look, I know there's a lot going on in this woman's life. You know, she's got ageing parents, her kids are needy, you know, she's working. But I've often wondered whether on that, in that brain, on that brain side of things, whether she's sort of that lack of estrogen primes her to be more uh, likely to be depressed anyway. That's right. And the American um, Psychiatry Association, I think it was pretty sure it was 2010, mm. actually came out with a statement about menopause being a risk time for some women for depression and anxiety. Okay. 
it's quite significant, particularly for those women who already have a previous history. So, mm. you know, if anyone's had a previous history and they've got over uh, an episode of depression or anxiety, absolutely important to just, you know, be kind to yourself. You may actually have to seek pharmacological treatment yeah. or, or, any, or some kind of treatment for your depression and anxiety during the menopause transition because we know decrease in estrogen increases stress, decreases capacity for normal mood. And I think a lot of women um, not only perhaps go down to for hormone treatment or, or they have their concerns uh, dismissed, I think a lot of women are very vulnerable. So we know that mm. the diagnosis of anxiety anxiety and depression increases for women in, in midlife. The other thing which you've alluded to is what I call the trifecta. Mm-hmm. So this is a time, the trifecta for women's lives. One is the hormone stage. So neuroendocrine changes are happening that make some women vulnerable. They're going through menopause. There is the life stage that you're talking about. So kids leaving home, empty nest, managing yeah. um, parents. And there's also age. And one of the reasons in Western societies that menopause is held up as such a negative thing is because it's it was considered a time when women were old, past it, redundant, became superfluous and redundant in society. Now, we know that's not the case now. Yeah. But in the 60s, there was major advertising campaigns that basically said that a woman of menopause age was over the hill past it. And, and that's what we're fighting against in this negative dialogue. So there's yeah. the trifecta of negative factors that may be leading women to feel depressed and anxious and it might have nothing to do with, you know, the menopause per se. Yeah, and I think they're all really good points. And I mean, I think, yeah, it was uh, Menopause Society, the Australian Menopause Society said that menopausal women constitute 40% of all healthcare visits in Australia. So if we as practitioners can help support our patients better, um, I I think we need to do it. And we also need to have those very frank and open conversations with with our patients about what's going on for them. I'm curious, though, like from a clinical perspective, how long do these changes to the brain last? Like how long does it take until the brain adjusts to those lower levels of estrogen? Well, you know, that's going to vary between individuals. Um, so it depends on the duration of their perimenopause and their menopause okay. before it resolves. So it's going to be a, an individual thing. Um, and, you know, the important thing here is what clinicians can do to help women help themselves yeah. because we understand there are a profoundly, you know, a vast array um, of, of lifestyle and mind style changes mm. that women can adopt. And this is why my book's optimistic and I'm really encouraging women to <laughs> embrace this time. There is so much they can do for themselves to make menopause easier and improve their health now during their midlife and for their late life. So, you know, it's often people want to take um, a, a hormone treatment um, to get rid of everything. But you know what? <laughs> there are so many other things people can do, diet changes, all sorts of things women can do. And so these these things will impact how long they experience the discomfort of menopause. Yeah, okay. And and I know from the research that quality of life scores do tend to drop in menopause. And, and as... Uh, naturopaths or clinicians, there's so many diet and lifestyle 
practices that we have in our toolkits to support these women. And often women will come in and they won't maybe have been into their health as much, but because they're in a bit of a crisis, they're now ready to tackle and make those changes that are going to embed and really help support them. So what strategies do you recommend for reassuring menopausal women that that they're going to be okay and that these trends, you know, these um, symptoms are a transition. Yes. Well, I'd say sort of three things mm. um, to start with. Uh, first thing is absolutely education. I have been so surprised by the lack of information women have about their own bodies, about yeah. how incredible they are. So always educate, educate, educate. Mm-hmm. Um so that women, because education means people have understanding and and opportunities and options. Yeah. The second thing, another E, so educate, is empower women. Mm. Um, you know, often women have been disempowered. You know, yeah. I've had a lot of women, I'm not the first person they've seen. So often I'm the last person they see. So they've had their experience invalidated. You know, women are still sent away with it's all in her mind, there's nothing wrong. Yeah. Um, you know, so women need to be empowered to take responsibility for their health um, and know that that they have uh, incredible capacity. And the last thing I think clinicians need to do is encourage women, and, we, and this comes back to the first commentary, we need to encourage positive acceptance and and let women know this is normal and healthy and it is it is a phase. You know, I talk about the two bookends and the first bookend is puberty and most women get <laughs> yeah. that. They understand that it went on for you know, a couple of years. Yeah. Um, and then I said, well, this is the second bookend. This is just like a second puberty, but this time it's going down, not up. So it's just a bookend around that middle phase of your life. Yeah. And you've got the third stage of your life, which is, you know, uh, late midlife and, and late life beyond. Yeah. Um, and it's called life now, not age. I mean, these are terms we need to use. Mm. We're talking about midlife and late life. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. And and I think that those key points, education, empowerment and encouragement are profound and we are perfectly placed to do all of those things and to do them really well. So I, I'm definitely going to be taking those three tenants on board when working with menopausal women. It would be great if we could walk away with your top three strategies. Well, I wanted to end with an ace because, you know, some people feel that menopause is a, a dud hand, you know, it's part, part of life, but it's it's a time of, of challenge. Yeah. And, you know, if you feel that you've been given a dud hand, um, it's really important to, you know, to play your aces without overworking a metaphor. So ace, A-C-E. Mm-hmm. And, and the first thing to do is acceptance. So as a clinician, you know, accepting the client's story, validating their experience, giving them information, but encouraging them to accept it. You know, menopause is a tr- it's, it will pass. It is normal, um, and there are things you can do. So, mm. so that is part of the acceptance for for clinicians to help guide their clients, and also for clients themselves to walk away saying, "Okay, the first thing is to accept this is an, a natural transitionary stage." Mm-hmm. The C stands for caring and kindness. Now, I know I've got 11 strategies in my book, but um, <laughs> having had 28 years in the, at the, at the coalface as a clinician uh, and a researcher, what I understand is unless people practice caring and kindness, they won't actually do anything. Yeah, that is such, so, a, such an important point, yes. 
Yeah. So if we if we encourage people to be kind to themselves, and I I really do in, invite women, you know, you often we are the the primary carers to everybody around us. Mm-hmm. Um, now is the time to embrace and care for yourself. So care for yourself and give yourself kindness. You know, we are faulted human beings, but we are perfect with our imperfections. So now <laughs> is the time to embrace self care and kindness because if you're not kind, you won't engage in the health behaviours. Um, that your, you know, that treating clinicians suggest, be it, you know, augmenting vitamins and and uh, mineral supplements or HT or exercise routines or yeah. sleep hygiene, all those things. Nothing will happen without that. Mm. And and the third thing is to find enjoyment, um, engage and enjoy um, what life has to offer, uh, and find the good. And sometimes as clinicians, we have to help our clients with their engagement. And, you know, as clinicians, we all have clients who we know are ambivalent. Um, So it's really important that we get that engagement. You know, maybe people do practice uh, motivational interviewing and things like that with their clients. But, you know, we have to keep that engagement and make it something that is achievable and engaging and enjoyable for, for people. Yeah, yeah. I love that acronym, ACE, acceptance, caring and enjoyment. Uh, I think practising those three things are going to go a long way towards helping women through that experience of menopause. I hope so too, because you know we've we're at menopause now just marks the midpoint in your life, so it's perfect time to say, right, no, have no recriminations for what's happened in the past, but actually completely embrace the future. Yeah, perfect, Nicola. Thank you so much for spending time with us today, discussing how menopause can affect our brains and our well-being. You know, it's a challenging time for so many women. And a couple of key takeaways for me are, you know, the transitory nature of changes in brain function as the brain adjusts for lower levels of estrogen. You know, it really is a stage. And the critical aspect of lifestyle medicine for menopausal transition, you know, schedule in those pyjama days and then the education, empowerment and encouragement that we need to do uh, in our practice. So once again, Dr. Nicola Gates, thank you so much for joining us today. Perfect. Thank you, Em, for the opportunity to talk today. Not a problem. Thanks, everyone, for listening today. Don't forget that you can find all the show notes, transcripts and other resources from today's podcast on the FX Medicine website. I'm Emma Sutherland. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment.